Uh, on the 2nd of March this year, two large groups of men gathered in two very different places for two very different events. Uh, the Presbyterian Men's Conference at Chatswood and a large number of men or a number of men from our church attended that. It was a very good day. And the Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras in King's Cross. Two groups of people, completely different, different attitudes, different outlooks, different priorities, different lifestyles, different fashion senses, as we saw on the train on the way home. Chatswood compared to King's Cross. One group interested in satisfying selfish desires, looking after number one, doing what they feel like whenever they feel like doing it. The other group, learning about serving Jesus as number one, how to put others first, how to be good husbands and fathers and friends. From King's Cross to Chatswood. It's only 30 minutes by train, but it's a trip that represents the lifetime journey each of us are on. Now this isn't a sermon about the gay lifestyle in particular, but only in the sense that that sort of life ignores God and what he says about life. It seeks to satisfy its own desires. And that's actually somewhere that all of us have been. But at some point, if we're Christian, then we jumped on the train that moved from King's Cross to Chatswood. We walked through the tunnel of self-centredness and we climbed the stairs of greed and pleasure and we hopped off the platform of me first and we boarded the train and we crossed the bridge from one side to the other and we left King's Cross and we started to head towards Chatswood. And so, if we're a Christian, life for us now is about keeping our eyes on King Jesus And he calls us to live by a different set of rules, an upside down set of rules where joy and happiness are found when we put others first. Freedom comes when we serve and true life is found when we die each day to selfishness. Now each of us are at different stations along the way from King's Cross all the way through to Chatswood. Some of us are doing pretty well. And we're a long way from where we used to be, a long way from King's Cross. We don't miss it at all, really. It was such an empty life and pointless. And life now as a Christian is much better. It's richer, it's more joyful. But then some of us are not doing so well and we're struggling. Maybe you haven't been travelling very long, you haven't been a Christian for a long time and you still desire the old things the bad habits that are hard to break. Or perhaps you've been on the trip from King's Cross to Chatswood, you've been travelling for years and maybe for a while you were doing okay but it seems like your wheels are starting to slip and you're heading back in the other direction. Or perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time and you've gone a bit dry, you're running low on fuel Nothing much has changed, the Bible seems boring, your prayers don't seem to be doing anything. Maybe you only feel like you've just moved out from the station. Well, it's to people like us that Peter writes this chapter, chapter 4. People who are on a journey 
from King's Cross to Chatswood as well. And they've left King's Cross, they've left that old life behind. Now, unlike most of us, their old life was pretty bad. It was about as bad as you can get. Verse 3 describes some pretty yucky things. But they've moved on from that. And Peter wants to encourage them and us, keep moving, keep travelling towards Chatswood, toward that life of pleasing Jesus. And he does it by giving us two motivations, two reasons to keep moving. And they're both to do with Jesus, one that's already happened and one that's going to happen soon. If you like, we're like those long freight trains. If you live anywhere near the railway line, you can sometimes hear them in the middle of the night and they just keep going on. That takes about five minutes for the train to go past. There's so many carriages that they actually need an engine at the back as well as the front. One engine that pulls and one engine that pushes. And that's the way it is with what Peter's saying here. The engine for us that's at the back is the example of Christ's suffering, something that's already happened. Have a look in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Peter says, think back to what Jesus did and take up that same attitude, have the same attitude. Then he tells us what what that attitude is. He who suffered in his body is done with sin. Jesus suffered and died to put an end to sin, to defeat it. And Peter says we're to have that same attitude. Now that doesn't mean we're to physically die to pay the punishment for sin. He doesn't mean that. But we're to use Jesus' death as the motivation to die to our sin, to put it to death, to to get rid of it. To have the same attitude as Jesus, I think, means we should treat our sin as seriously as Jesus treats it. How seriously did Jesus treat our sin? Well, so seriously he died for it. How seriously do you take your sin? How radical is the surgery that you are willing to do to cut sin out? What will you say no to? What will you get rid of? Who will you tell about your sin so they can keep you accountable? What radical surgery will you have to be done with sin? Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, poke it out. Get rid of it. Have the same attitude to your sin as Jesus did. He died for it. So you should be done with sin. We've left King's Cross Station. We're headed towards Chatswood. And Jesus' suffering is the engine that pushes us from behind. But Peter has another engine, another motivation. And this one is ahead of us. It's the engine that pulls us forward. Look forward to Christ's judgement, he says. That will motivate you to keep going. See there in verse 5? The day when everyone will have to give account. Judgement is a wonderful thing if you know you're innocent. You look forward to it. But it's the exact opposite if you know you're guilty. You have a different, a completely different approach to justice depending on whether you're innocent or guilty. 
It's like when you've been pulled over to be breath tested when you're driving home. Perhaps you've gone to a restaurant or a party and it's the difference when you're pulled over and you're waiting for the policeman to walk up to your car between whether you've drunk water all night and you sit there waiting and you're, that's alright, cool as a cucumber. Or maybe you've had a few drinks and you, you're trying to work out how long it is since you had your last drink and how many bits of pizza you had and you know what the drinks were and how full they were and you're going, oh, will it be alright or not? And that's what it's like with the coming judgement. It motivates us to make sure we're on the right side. Because we know it's a possibility, or we know it's a certainty, we want to be on the right side of that. We want to live not by evil desires, but according to God's desires. So that when Jesus appears, we will be found doing the things that please him. So that's the engine that pulls us from the front as we head towards Chatswood. Well, Peter wants us to have the same attitude as Jesus, to be done with sin. And uh, in verse 3, he describes the sorts of sins that his readers were done with. He says, you've spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. It's a pretty awful picture. Three to do with sexual sin and Uh, Then there are two to do with parties, drunkenness and carousing. And there's one more on the list. It's last on the list but it's really the worst of all because it sums all the others up. It's what causes all the rest, idolatry. Whether it's an actual idol that represents a God or, or whether it's actually anything in your life that replaces God. Anything we desire more than God is idolatry. Physical satisfaction, that's idolatry. Desiring a full stomach or loving a a delicious meal or another drink or sex outside of marriage, that's idolatry. And Peter says, literally in that verse, you used to work at these things. You used to work at those things. Those things consumed you. Your energies, your thoughts, your attention, you pursued them with the energy of an athlete and those desires affected every part of your life, says Peter, tainted, stained your life. Sin can be like that. Sin is like that, especially sexual sin. You can't keep sexual sin in just one little area. It infects everything. It affects the way you look at good things like friendship and beauty become stained by sexual desire. But that's not the only idol. Materialism can be an idol as well. Wanting more things. Your eye sees something. It might be a catalogue or an ad on TV. Your desire grows and you have to have it. You're jealous of someone else that has it. It affects your enjoyment of the good things you do have. They don't satisfy you because you want other things. The Apostle Paul said he'd learned an important secret, not where the treasure chest was, but he said, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether I've got a lot or whether I have nothing. 
I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4, 12 and 13, that's a great secret to have, to be content is the opposite of idolatry. Evil human desires, it's no wonder Peter says they spent enough time doing that stuff, but not anymore, they've left that station behind. But when they did, their old drinking mates didn't like it. See there in verse 4? They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse at you. I can't understand why anyone would want to do things different. Doesn't everyone want to get swept along by doing whatever feels good? Peter describes it as a flood of dissipation. Different translations have a different phrase. A flood of dissipation, over the top, wildness, out of control. But here's the thing that's really strange. The parties were supposed to be good fun where all your friends were together, but it was really empty friendship because as soon as the Christians left that lifestyle behind, their so-called friends turned on them and abused them. It wasn't really much of a friendship at all, was it? Well, Peter wants to give his own advice to those Christians who've left that sort of life behind so they won't be discouraged, verse 5 and 6. In verse 5 he says, those who abuse the Christians will have to give a very different sort of speech on the day Jesus comes back. They'll have to account for their behaviour before Jesus the judge. And then he adds verse 6, which is a, it's a difficult verse. Judgment's coming, verse 6, for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. All sorts of opinions about what it means, but here's what I think it means. Uh, The gospel was preached to your fellow Christians, your brothers and family members who, who, who are now dead. When they were alive, the gospel was preached to them. And so that meant... Yes, they suffered the the insults and the accusations from the world while they were in their body, but now the gospel was preached to them and they're saved and they live according to the Spirit. They're in heaven with God. In other words, your friends and your family who've died, they haven't missed out. They made their choice between two ways of life and it was tough in this life, but it was worth it because they're living with God now in the spirit. It's worth it for you as well to make that choice. Well, that's describing the life the Christians have left behind, the King's Cross. But they haven't made it to Chatswood yet. They're still on the journey and so Peter wants to encourage them to push on. And as he describes the sort of life they should live, I want you to notice how it's not an individual life. In fact, neither the old life or the new life are an individual life. He describes what they used to do as non-Christians and now he describes what they should do as Christians and they're both group work. Have a look at verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins 
Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And notice in this description how it contrasts their old life. Be clear-minded, he says. It's literally, be sober. That's compared to what they used to do when they were drunk. Be sober, be self-controlled. Don't party, don't get carried away. And rather than chase after idols, be clear-minded so you can pray. Chase after God. Focus on him, on the living God who hears and answers prayers. Don't focus on dead idols who can't do anything. The end of all things is near, he says, so pray for yourself. Pray for your old mates. Pray for your fellow Christians. There's a motto in life, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Peter says, be sober, self-controlled and pray, for tomorrow we die. I think that's a much more useful slogan, isn't it? Be sober, self-controlled and pray for tomorrow we die. And instead of lusting after someone else's body and enjoying dirty thoughts, Peter says, love each other deeply. That's the right way to love people. Love each other deeply. It's stretchy love. It's got to be deep. I think he means it's got to be fervent. You've got to feel something. It's got to be full on. It's about not giving up. Love that doesn't run out. Love that has deep pockets. Yes, we're commanded to love and sometimes people say, I'm commanded to love this person but it doesn't mean I have to like them. Well, I don't think Peter's saying that. I think he's saying you'll love. Yes, I'm commanding you to love but it's to be deep, it's to be genuine. There's to be genuine warmth in your relationships. And as well as deep, he's talking about love that is spread out widely. Love that's the king-sized doona on a single bed. There's a quote from Proverbs in verse 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. Deep love overlooks people's mistakes. It, it keeps loving even when people don't act lovable. One of the ways to show that we love each other is to offer hospitality without grumbling. Do you notice that last little bit, without grumbling? Have a good attitude when you're hospitable. And once again, it's compared to the wild parties offer hospitality. It's far better. Hospitality is focused on other people rather than on pleasing yourself. How good are you at offering hospitality? What excuses do you use for not being hospitable? Get creative. You don't have to have a lovely big home. You don't have to be the world's best cook. There's someone I know in this church who doesn't invite people to his house but he takes them out to a restaurant. He's also invited people, a family, to a park for a picnic and he brings everything. That's being hospitable. Hospitality is about your motivation, the right attitude, not grumbling. It's not about the menu. But not just hospitality. Peter stretches it out in verse 10. Whatever gift God's given you, Use it to serve others. Do it faithfully like a steward who's been given a job. Make the most of what you've been given. Don't waste it. 
Are you making the most of the gifts you've been given? Or have you stored them away? Maybe your gift is speaking. Well, I think all of us can speak. Don't store it away. Use your words. Do it as if you're speaking the very words of God. That's how important speaking is. I don't know about you, but most of the time I say the first thing that comes into my head. And often what comes out, well, I may as well have not have said it. But Peter says, don't be like that. If we recognise that when we speak, we're actually speaking words that God can use, that'll make us stop and think about what we're saying. Before you speak, shoot up a quick prayer to God and then speak. Words are powerful. Words can make a difference. Words can be used by God for his purposes, to encourage and comfort and rebuke and challenge and support. So let's recognise the effect our words can have. Let's ask God to use what we say to achieve his purposes. Let's speak as if we're speaking the very words of God. And that's all of us. It doesn't just apply to the people that get to be up in front of the microphone here. It can be a card, it can be a phone call, it can be over a cup of coffee, it can be side by side as you go for a walk together. Or maybe your gift is serving. Don't store it away, use it. Do it with God's strength. Don't run out of energy or motivation halfway through. Don't ignore a job because you think you can't do it. And when you do it, do it depending on God. Do it by his strength, not your own strength. When you serve with that attitude, it's actually God who gets the glory. Peter says, serve with the strength God provides so that in everything God may be praised. To him be the glory. When we do things, we shouldn't do it so people notice us. They should notice Jesus. Jesus' example of suffering should push us on. The certainty of judgement should pull us on. So they're the two portraits. King's Cross, Chatswood. How far are you travelling? How far along the track have you gone? How's your love? Is it deep and stretchy? How faithful are you at using your gifts? How hospitable? What's your speech like? Are you conscious that you're speaking God's words? And how are we going as a church at all of these things? If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would motivate us by the example of Jesus, that you would energise us by his spirit at work in us and that together we would encourage each other onwards, away from the old life, and towards the life uh, of honouring Jesus and living for him. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.